0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk in relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Uh, first service, I said, hey, we are nearing the end. And Pastor Sean said, everybody looked up like, what? What does he know? It's like, we're just nearing the end of our study of Revelation. That's all. But I won't just say it that way because I could be right. This could, could you imagine that? Like next week is our last day, uh, last week in the study of Revelation. And then the Lord returns right there. Like he was just, I was just waiting for Calvary to get through the book of Revelation. Some of you are like, hurry up. Let's preach both sermons today. And some of you are like, let's detour. So... No, glad that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, it's almost easier to start from the back and work your way forward. So we are in the second to the last chapter, uh, as is kind of been our style through the study of Revelation, just taking a chapter at a time. There's a lot in there. Uh, It's hard to really honestly tease out every little nuance and every little thing about that. Every once in a while, I get somebody comes up to me like, you didn't talk much about this part of it. And it's like, well, if I would have went over 45 minutes, Jerron and Sean would have shot me. You know, and so like you should thank them for that. So there is a lot there. Um, and so highly recommend just personal study. Dig into it, obviously. Uh, we have the breakdown. The, me and are break down every sermon. So we go and geek out a little bit more than the normal. Um, but the idea is always what, what does the Lord have for us as the body of Christ today? And so we are in the study of Revelation. We are in chapter 21, which this is the culmination of all human history. Like this is what we're waiting on. This is what our hope lies in. So I love the line that talks about we as Christians right now, as the body of Christ, we live in the tension of the already. Christ already died for us. We have righteousness in him. We are filled with his Holy Spirit, but we're between the already and the not yet that we're waiting on that completed work of God, his full purpose, and, and this is that. So even now as we wait in the tension of it, this is what we're waiting for. This is what all of our hope is in. Not just ending as we talked about last week in the millennial kingdom, but this is where all our hope is at. This is because of our faith in Christ. This is what we're waiting on. And so to read this, like the crazy part to think about, right, is one day we will experience this. So we, our family just took a vacation recently. It was nice to get out and get away from ministry. The first time in about a decade of ministry that I've really been able to unplug and not worry about it. So when we were away, I was like, the church could be burning right now. And I could care less. It was awesome. It was so great. I was like, I hope Jerron's leading well through this. <laughs> because I'm enjoying being in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's it's crazy because we planned this so many months in advance, and we were looking forward to it. We would watch videos on YouTube, and we would read different reviews, and, and it was like, oh, one day we're gonna experience that, and then that day came. And it's like, this is the fullness of what we were hoping for. It's the same way with new heavens and new earth, that even in our study this morning, understand that there will be a day that you will walk in experiencing this if you've put your faith and your trust in Christ. And so with that, Revelation 21, there's a few uh, words that we'll get to that are hard to pronounce, right? And this is just a little uh, uh, side note. If you ever get to really difficult words in the Bible that you have to read out loud and like maybe a small group or maybe you're going to be preaching one day, here's, here's the idea. You just lead confidently because if anybody corrects you, nobody really is, but if they do, that's a heart issue with them. You know what I mean? So just lead confidently, mispronounce it, but go big. You know what I mean? Like go big or go home. And so there's going to be, there's at least one that I had to kind of like pause first service and it's like, all right, I'm going to go with this, right? Hooked on phonics wasn't really that good for me, but here we go. (laughs) Revelation 21, some of you remember what that is. There you go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Like catch that real quick. There is not a tear that the Lord cannot handle. And even in this valley that our community is going through in our high school and, and experiencing such loss. Hold fast to the promise of God. Hold fast to the character of God. That there is not a grief, there's not a pain, there's not a tear that he cannot handle. So even in the midst of the storm, even in the midst of the dark valley, what do we do? We hold fast to the promises of God. And so he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <clears throat> and he who has who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. It's almost like John got a little distracted. And so God had to kind of get on to him. Hey, write this down. Don't miss this. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, ninth, topaz, the tenth, see, this is the hard one. Somebody else walked up and showed me their Bible and they're like, mine says turquoise. I was like, that's so much easier, right? Why did I have to pick the one that has this weird word? That's how you pronounce it. I listened to it like nine times this morning and it still didn't help. The eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. At the twelve gates, were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so this chapter, just in 27, short, even though it seemed long, 27 short verses describing the start of our eternity with God and talking about the culmination of all of not just human history, but this is the end of God's plan, that his will, his purposes for us and earth. And I love in verse five where he says, he who is seated on the throne, so we can only understand who that is, says, behold, I am making all things new. See, a lot of times when we read through scripture and we're going to Genesis next, that's the next, next big book that we're going to walk through and we're going to start in the garden. And a lot of times in the study of the garden of Eden, a lot of us have those questions. Why, how could Adam have sinned? How could he be in a perfect situation, right? In a perfect relationship with God. He had a perfect wife. She never nagged, not even once. Don't laugh at that. You're get in trouble, guy, right? He just elbowed his wife right there. See how tonight goes for you. No. How could he be in a perfect situation, in a perfect life, and choose otherwise? And we, we get mad at Adam and Eve a little bit, like, you know, how could they have done that to us? And now we have to deal with all of this because Eve ate the fruit, and Adam sinned, and, and we look at that, and, it, and there's songs, and there's the idea that, you know, we want to go back to the garden, Honestly, I don't think that's God's plan for us. Because if it was, it would be. But what is God's plan for us? See, we're not trying to go back to a garden, to a place of innocence and purity. Which, yes, innocence and purity matter to God. But we, as the body of Christ, of those that have been saved by his blood, we're never, we're never called innocence. What are we called? Redeemed. See, we're not trying to go back to the garden into a place of innocence, we're always moving forward to a city. And this is God's work of redemption, not his work of innocence, because none of us can be innocent. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But because of his free gift, we're not going to move backwards into innocence, but we move forward in redemption because we could, we can get a little bit frustrated. We can look at Adam and say, well, how could you ever have done that? Like we would have a better, greater strength to say no to sin. And it kind of has that uh, connotation. And there was a, there was a movie uh, of like ancient warfare where you see a picture of this. So every once in a while, two armies would line up against each other instead of the whole army just going after it. They would take one person to represent this army and they would take one person to represent this army. And these would be the champions. And they would just have a one-on-one battle. And whoever won that, then by proxy, that whole army had won. There's a Brad Pitt movie where he plays Achilles, and he does that. David and Goliath were that. And so that army would always pick their biggest, strongest, best warrior to go to battle for them. And amongst all of humanity... There was nobody better to try to fight that battle than Adam. Not Christ, because he was more than humanity. He was divine, but just straight humanity. So when we think, how, how could Adam have fallen? You would have fell so much quicker. I would have fell so much faster, right? I wouldn't even like, he wouldn't even have got the words out of his mouth. Like, hey, do not eat from the tree. I'm like, hold on, I'm crunching on some apples here. Gore, what was that Lord? I didn't hear you full. Like I would already been making apple pie. I'd had apple cobbler. I don't even know if it was an apple. Okay, just go with me. And so Adam was that champion for us and he fell. And that's why when Adam fell, sin entered the world. So as Adam died, we all died in him. But we're not working back to the garden, trying to go back to an innocence. We can't. We can only move forward in redemption. Because think about it. What we gain, we gain so much more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. We gain so much more in the city, New Jerusalem, at the completed work of redemption than we ever lost in the innocence in the garden of Eden with Adam. And so God's work is all about redemption. And then that just a beautiful story that that's what God wants to be about, you know, cause we all have those things that we don't want to do part of our jobs at work and stuff. We have the things that we love and that's why we do those. But every job always has that certain level of distinct as I call it. And we have to be able to endure those things. God's story, his work of redemption, that's not the part of his story. That's like, I guess I'll save these guys. I guess I'll do a work of redemption. I wanted to do something else with my time, but you know what, they're lost, and so I got to save them. No, this this is his work. This is God's heart to bring about the story of redemption, and this chapter here culminates it and shows the completion of his work of redemption. So I, I try to read a devotional every morning. Try, yeah, even the pastor misses a few days. It happens, right? And so this morning I get to the office and get a cup of coffee or I'll be like a dragon of a guy, right? And, and in the quietness of the office, open up my devotional and the the first line at the top just hits me knowing that I wanted to focus on God's work of redemption for us. This is the, he said, how would you summarize in one sentence the story of redemption? I love that. And he said, sin has driven us out of the garden. But grace drives us right into the arms of the Father. So think about when, when he, God is telling us, I am making all things new, and it is done. That word to tell us that the same words that he said from the cross, he's gonna say here in Revelation 21 that it is done. Think about the context in which he is gonna say these words. So we just had Thanksgiving. Hope you had a great turkey day. Hope you had good family around. And we, we can all understand that sometimes it's good to be around family and friends. Other times it's really stressful. And you're like chain smoking just to get through the day, right? The pastor said chain smoking? Yeah. And some of you are like, oh, no, I have a great family. Like there's no issues whatsoever. It's because you're the issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> there it is. That's how you can identify it. they be like, no, I got a great family. Yeah, they're all waiting for you to leave soon. You know what I mean? But my senior pastor he used to talk about this. You know, he talked about the holidays and what he was looking forward to. And, and I mean, he was a man's man, right? Loved to camp outside, go backpacking and all this. And he ends up having three daughters, poor guy, right? And so, like, he wanted to be like, he was big into Boy Scouts and cheerleaders. You know, wants to go outside camping and roughing it. You know, they're doing hair and makeup. So he has three daughters. If anybody was supposed to have a son, it was him, but he has three daughters instead. But when they get to the holiday season, they get to Christmas, and they would always ask him, you know, Dad, what do you want? What could we buy you? And it's like, nothing. Don't buy me anything. I just want you to come home and maybe bring that schmuck of a husband too, right? We'll allow it, but just come home. And he talked about the wholeness and a fullness of having his family together. So when God says, it is done, and I'm making all things new, he's not saying that separated from us. He is saying that in communion with us. He's saying it like a good father and all his kids are home for the holidays and they're not leaving. It is done. I'm making all things new. Doesn't that just add another layer to it to understand the heart of the father? that his whole work of redemption is so that day comes and he can say, it's done. They're all home and they're all with me. Because when you even hear these words, you're hearing this, the voice from the throne saying the dwelling place of God is with man. See, a lot of times we in our, you know, uh, quick eschatology, we just want to uh, get saved, try to live right. When we die, we go to heaven. We, we want to be with Jesus, That'd be an inaccurate view of God. It's not like, oh, here comes Nick. I guess we'll let him in because he accepted me as a savior. We'll allow him into heaven. No, he, God, wants to be with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. It's not the dwelling place of man to be with God. When he says it is done and I'm making all things new, he's saying it in communion and in relationship and in unity with us. And this has always been his plan of redemption. So if you want to hold here, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is one of my favorite passages. It talks about the Trinity and its concept of our salvation. So starting verse 3, it'll say in him, and he's speaking of God the Father. And then in verse 7, it goes in him, and he's referring to God the Son. And then down in 13 and 14, it's in him talking of the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians chapter 1, if you look... In verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, not anybody else's purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So his whole work plan of redemption, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. See, there's a verse in Galatians 4.4 that talks about the fullness of time that Jesus would be born under a woman and uh, to a woman under the law. That was talking of his first advent. But here, the fullness of time is this day of complete redemption that he's bringing about. And so as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, the things in heaven and the things on earth that he wants to unite all of this together. And when that unity has happened, it is done. It is all made new. So understand the story of redemption. It's your story. It's my, this is, this is the completion of our story. And there's not one of us here this morning, because of our faith and our trust in Jesus, that has a completed story of redemption. We are all in between the already and the not yet. And we are waiting. Some of us are waiting in different little situations in life. Am I going to get that job? Is she going to say yes? Is, you know, like, what's my life going to look like? But the ultimate story of redemption, we are all still in the waiting. That when we read this story of God's completed redemption, that work of redemption, this is our story. See, I think about that sometimes. You know, there's been a few events in my life that I thought, okay, this is how I end. This is how it's going to be, right? And then for some miraculous reason, it doesn't happen. Hoorah, we're excited for that, right? Nobody more than my wife excited that I don't die. But I think about, is this the end of my story? Is this how I end? See, regardless of what takes me out, I can read Revelation 21 and know that's my end. That's my story is this completed work of redemption and being with God. I love that. And so when we see God's eternal purpose in Jesus Christ, it is accomplished. And so we go back to verse three and we see that the dwelling place of God is with man. A few weeks ago, we talked about Uh, Cliff was preaching, and he talked about the tabernacle and the temple, and how it was this external structure so that God's presence, his glory, could be with humanity. And then you fast forward, and he talked about how Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He dwelt among us. That's where you get that word tabernacled. And then he called me a bald tabernacle, right? (laughs) So Cliff is a tabernacle as well a short, hairy one, but he's a tabernacle. Now we're even, you can tell your dad, thank you. No. And so he tabernacled with us, but still there was a veiling to it. Just like there was a veil in the tabernacle in the temple building, there was still, still a veiling even to the body of Christ. And we only see glimpses of that unveiling, think of like the Mount of Transfiguration. But the whole purpose was that God wanted to be with us. He wasn't trying to show us a way to him. He was showing us the way he was going to take to us. Think of the heart of Jesus. And you read Philippians 2 that talks about how he left and took on the form of a man, took on the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself. Why? So he could be with us, that he tabernacled, he templed with us. But if you fast forward to the end of this chapter, you're hearing John seeing this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. In verse 22, what's he say? I saw no temple in the city, which would be very uh, outside of the ordinary in this ancient culture. Every city at least had a temple. Might not have been to the real God, but they'd have all kinds of temples to God, it's like a religious component to a city like that was very normal. So for John to see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and the one thing that would have been in any other city that he's ever seen, there's no temple here. Why? Because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb, that's its temple. So when you think about temples and tabernacles, before Jesus the temple was a prophecy. Even Jesus kind of saying like, hey, you tear down the the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. It was, so that building was prophetic to something else. Even in the church age today, right now, who is the temple? We are. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then last week we talked about in the millennium that the temple will be a memorial that will pick back up kind of the Jewish feast and festivals and the sacrifices and the offerings as a memorial. But here, the temple is everywhere. Everything and every place is holy in the dwelling place of God. So in the eternal state, like we wake up one day and be like, you know what? I'm going to go see what Jesus is up to. I'm going to go see what that little rascal up to today. We're not going to have to walk around the 12,000 stadia, hollering his name, trying to find him. We will be in his presence. Pastor Sean shared with me and I was like, "Ooh, that's so good. I got to use it. You know, at the very beginning in Genesis, when he floods the earth, and what was his sign not to flood the earth ever again? A rainbow. A rainbow that symbolized a promise. And that's all that a rainbow symbolizes is a promise. And then you fast forward to the beginning of Revelation, and you get a picture of the throne room, and you see the presence of God, and what was around him? A rainbow. And now when we look at this temple, which the whole city is the temple, it's everywhere, the foundations, we're going to see a rainbow in it that would signify not just the promise of God, but then also the presence of God. So all through human history, in the middle, the tension of his work of redemption, he's always had to veil himself. I mean, he even told Moses that, you can't handle it. You're going to have to hide yourself in a rock and you can catch a glimpse of me walking by. Same thing happened to Elijah. Elijah you're only gonna get a glimpse of me. Even at the Mount of Transfiguration, those three disciples fall to their faces and they don't even want to look up, they can hear, but they see him in that, which is kind of crazy because who appeared with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, the same. They got to see him in the Old Testament that they see the fullness of that. There's so much more there that we could geek out on, but we got to keep moving. So the glory of God that we get to see is not just going to be veiled and tabernacled and templed, but it will be everywhere because his promise, his presence is with us, that there will be nowhere in the new Jerusalem that he won't be. And that is his dwelling place is with us. And it says, for the glory of God, it gives a little further explanation. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamp. So if you go back to that Old Testament tabernacle temple, there was always a a lamp stand in there that would give light unto it. And some people kind of ask, well, like, so go back to Genesis in the garden. When God created, he said, let there be light. How is there light? Because there wasn't anything to give light until the fourth day. There was no sun, moon, or stars. What was that? God revealing his glory unto this created world. And so there's going to be no need in New Jerusalem for a sun, moon, or stars. There's going to be no lampstands in that temple. Why? Because the lamb is the lamp. God will give that light for us. And again, not veiled or restricted. Think about that, the, the holiest of holies. So the temple was, in the tabernacle, there was kind of three parts. And as you kind of got in closer, that was the holiest of holies. And the high priest could only walk in there one time a year on the day of atonement, sprinkle some uh, bull's blood around for the atonement of sin. And, and the presence of God, the glory of God, that Shekinah glory was so powerful, so dangerous that if you walked in, into the presence of God in an unclean manner, you would die. They used to tie bells around the high priest and then tie a rope around them. So if for some reason he walked into the presence of God in an unclean manner and he dropped dead, they could drag him out. So think about that when you hear jingle bells. Be like, oh, that's the high priest, not dying. No, there you go. I love this Christmas song. But here, because the completed work of redemption, we walk in the glory of God and it is everywhere in that symbol. So in a sense, what God, he's not rebuilding, a temple, he's expanding that the holiest of holies is the new Jerusalem. And so that glory of God giving light and its lamp is the lamb. And we, we see hints of this. So First John 1, 5, when we were going through that, God is light, a metaphysical, not a metaphorical, but a metaphysical attribute of God is he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when we talk about our eternal life with God, there's the component of light. And you take it further that you see in Revelation 21 verses 11, 18 and 21 talks about a constant mention of transparency that it was like glass, and it indicates that the city is designed to transmit the glory of God in the form of light without hindrance, without veiling, without flesh, that there would be a full radiance of the glory and the lights of God in this new Jerusalem. Let's geek out about some lights, right? When's the last time he just geeked out about lights? And we like light. We study light. You know, we have the, the speed of light, and we can calculate what that is, lights. And so in this last generation, just recently, one of the things that we've been studying about light is we'll put some filters on it. It's called a cross-polarized light, because light bounces all off of everything, right? Like, you just look at my head, and you can understand that. There is no light source originating in my forehead. It's these KFC chicken lamps that we use up here to keep me warm and crispy and ready to go. You know what I mean? And so the, the glow that you're seeing, it's not the Shekinah glory, as yes, some of you think, you know, like, why are you laughing so hard at that? <laughs> and so there's, the light is just bouncing off and everything. But if we, if we can harness it and you put it through some filters so it's very straight light, like a laser light, that's how you're going to get more and more pure lights. So we know the metaphysical attribute of God is God is light and I think it would be blasphemous to think that there's any other pure light than God. God is pure light. Right? And so just like a kid remember the first time you ever got access to a lighter. <sighs> right? Everybody thought I was a nuisance. No, I was a scientist because I just started lighting everything on fire. I wanted to know what burns, what doesn't burn. I'm a firebug. That's so what we do. And so these scientists, when they are messing with this crossed polarized light, so they're filtering it so it's very straight laser light, what do we do? Well, Let's shine, shine it on some stuff. Let's see what happens. Just like a kid with a lighter, we just start lighting everything on fire in the name of science to see what happens. And so they started taking like precious stones and jewels and they'll cut them nice and thin and they shine this pure light through them. And they want to see the response of it. And there's two kind of scientific uh, uh, categories we could say that happens in that response of pure light shining through a thin slice of of a jewel, right? And so one side is called isotropic, nice big fancy word right there, and the other side is called anisotropic. Pretty original. So there's some isotropic jewels and some are called anisotropic jewels. And what it means is, so an isotropic jewel is when pure light passes through them, they lose all color and they just go black. They just lose all color. There's nothing that we see. That pure light going through them, displays nothing, just goes black. There's nothing about it, no beauty whatsoever. You know what some of those, uh, let me make sure I get it right, isotropic jewels are? Sorry ladies, diamonds. They might be your best friend here on Earth, but there's really nothing beautiful about them when you shine pure light through them. Something very, very valuable on this side of—I'm trying to let my ADD go because I saw the light flash. I try to let it go. <laughs> this is the fruit of the spirit right here. This is self-control. Okay. And so you have so these diamonds, very valuable on Earth, but when you're shining this pure light through them, there's no there's no beauty in that. It's an external beauty, and that's it. Rubies, garnets. These are all examples of isotropic jewels, where pure light that's cross-polarized, filtered, laser light shining through them, they lose all color and go black. And then on the other side, there's something called anisotropic jewels. And so when you put pure light through them and take a, a thin little layer of that precious jewel, regardless of the original color, when that pure light goes through them, there's all different kinds of colors and patterns that you see, and it's absolutely beautiful. That is, that's science. So if you want to mess with some pure light and start slicing up some diamonds at home and some other things to see if they're anisotropic or isotropic, you have fun at it. Here's the fun part. The 12 stones that we go back and we look at the foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem and we have those 12 that I could barely pronounce, all 12 precious stones and jewels that God uses to build the foundation of New Jerusalem are all anisotropic meaning that when pure light passes through them, we have a beautiful display of every color of the rainbow, signifying the promise and the presence of God. We see these beautiful patterns that are in those. Now, some people want to go so far to say, that's scientific reasoning to show that the Bible is inspired. I think there's way better arguments to use that the Bible is inspired word of God. That's one of those that I kind of classify in. That's pretty cool. Because John wouldn't have known that. He was just writing what was revealed to him. And so I think about that. And I think about, you know, that light passing through it and, and how the, the whole new Jerusalem, it has that transparency kind of mind about it. You know, it keeps talking about that. Light, glass, light, glass, light, glass. And we have this pure light. And then we study these jewels. And then, then I start, you know, like geeking out, kind of going down that road. And then I make it Personal. And I apply it to my life. So what about me? Am I isotropic? Or am I anisotropic? Is there beauty of the light of Christ shining through me? Is there a certain pattern of my life that represents the love of Christ? Or does it just all go black? What about your life? because of your faith and your trust in Jesus? Do you allow the light and the love of Christ to shine through you? There would be a beautiful, beautiful display, again, of all those colors signifying the presence and the promise of God. The pattern of our life is after a certain pattern that we're following Christ. Would people see that light of Christ shining through us? Do we have that kind of transparency in our life or does it just all go black? Are we like a beautiful diamond that the world would say, man, look at the value of that person. Looks good on the outside, great value, something that is so sought after, but when the light of Christ passes through them, they go black. Is my cup clean on the outside, but full of filth on the inside? Am I a whitewashed tomb? Or do I allow the light and the love of Christ to shine through me? See, one of the things that we see about New Jerusalem, we're using the word transparency just in the sense to be able to see through it. And I want to apply that to our lives. Why do we as the church lack such transparency with one another? Why are we afraid to let people see the light and the love of Christ shining through us? And instead, we walk into buildings like this and we put our mask on. We make sure everybody knows that we are perfect and nothing about our life is hurt, broken, or disrupted. What we're doing is covering our lives and when the light of Christ tries to work through it, it just all goes black. See, there needs to be a transparency in us because if we're not about transparency, we're really not gonna like New Jerusalem. But there needs to be a transparency. There needs to be an honesty and an authenticity about us. Maybe not brutally honest. You, know, you don't need to come up, up on the stage, grab the mic and just share all of your sins and all of your struggles with all of us. But do you have a life group that we could share each other's burdens with? I mean, that is scriptural. It never says to carry your own burdens. The Bible says to carry each other's burdens. So the very thing that could be weighing you down that you don't want anybody to know that you are carrying is never meant for you to carry. But to have that fellowship of believers that will carry that for you. And it's hard because what do we do in our good Western American mindset? Well, I don't want to bother anybody else. I don't want to be a trouble to anybody else. Yeah, ask Jesus about that on the cross. He took the greatest burden. He took the greatest trouble from you. And he commands us to carry each other's burdens. And I think it's a two-way street. There's times that when we are hit with something, we need to have that circle of fellowship that we can lay those on. And then on the other side, we need to be picking up other people's burdens. But what's so difficult about it is we are so unwilling to lay down our burdens that we can never imagine picking up somebody else's. Because what do we say? I have enough of my own problems. You're right, you do. And those aren't yours to carry. You were never commanded to. The only things we're called to carry in scripture is pick up our cross, take his yoke, and to carry each other's burdens. That those pressures and those burdens and those pains of life, they were never meant for you. And when you read the New Testament. People ask, you know, why do we need to go to organized church? Why do we need to be together? Because that's what the Bible commands of us. That God's desire, his whole plan of redemption, the very thing we started talking about, was going to be lived out in a community of faith. If he wanted us to be island off and and be by ourselves, he would have made it that way. But when you read the New Testament and you understand the context of the church, it is always done in a communal context. It is never done in an individual. And there is a lot of individualism that is starting to plague the church. It's plaguing its worship music. It's plaguing what's being preached from the pulpits. That we can walk in and be completely non-transparent with one another, and we take that, oh, we don't talk about faith and politics at the dinner table, but we apply it to every aspect of our lives. See, if we walk in with that lack of transparency, you know what else that we're communicating? There is no transformation of Christ in my life. There's no work of redemption that God is in the middle of. And as believers, all of us are smack dab in the middle of a work of redemption. But we're afraid to be honest with one another. Why? Because we're going to judge each other. We're going to hold each other down. We're not going to hold each other accountable. We're going to hold each other down because we're afraid to be really honest with one another. And I think it's a hindrance on both sides. One, we don't know the burden and the baggage other people carry. But if we're unwilling to be transparent with one another, how would they ever find hope in Christ that he can wipe away every tear when nobody's willing to shed a tear? how can we ever teach that he's willing to carry our burden and our pain if we're so unwilling to lay it down? How can we tell a broken, lost world that your brokenness is welcome here and there's transformation if we can't be honest about it? Now, Paul didn't go into the gory details of his story, nor do I go into the gory details of my story. And as a pastor... I feel like I need, and that's why I try to be as transparent as I can from the pulpit. How could I ever expect in the body what I'm refusing to do in my own personal life? And so people hear our story of brokenness. I think it was hilarious the first time I ever shared my story here at Calvary. We had pie and ice cream upstairs. It was like in the first few months, a few of you were probably here. And I share my crazy story of redemption. And I had a couple people come up and they said, all that stuff really didn't happen until you did it. I was like, you caught me, I was just trying to get the job, man. No, this is our stories. Because when we refuse that transparency so people can see the light and the love of Christ in them, what we're doing is guarding them from the hope of Christ. One of my favorite stories in youth ministry there was a, uh, a youth pastor who was taking his students on a, like a, a good old Christian festival concert, conference type of a thing. And one of those students got invited and showed up, right? One of those that the youth pastors like, what is he doing here? Like, that's the hellion of the school. And he just rolled into my youth group. It's like, this could get bad, right? And so, you know, he's praying the whole way, like, Lord, do a work like this. This kid's got some brokenness. And on the way to the conference, the concert, whatever it was, the bus, the church bus breaks down. And so the youth pastor's getting out. He's trying to change this like crazy flat tire. Then it starts to rain only to find out that the, the tire, the spare tire doesn't fit the church van. And he just loses his ever loving mind. And I thought, I have never identified with another human being as much than that guy right there. He starts kicking the van, calling it all kinds of names, and I'm just like, my man, right? Because there is nothing more that I would love for the Lord to remove from me than the burden of car troubles. Like, I do not have the patience to deal with that because I, I don't have the smarts about it, too. I'm vastly ignorant in cars, right? There's a gas, brake, steering wheel, right? That blinker thing. You know, we'll get to that, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, I know, I followed you before, right? So I'm not good at cars. so I have great ignorance and I have a great impatience for it. And it is just a struggle for me. So I'm hearing this story and I'm just like, this is my kind of guy. So he loses his ever loving mind on the church van, cussing at it, screaming at it, yelling at it. He just loses (laughs) his whole redemptive story almost on this. But somebody stops in, they get it fixed, they get back on the road, they get to the conference, and just like a good conference or concert or whatever it was, you know, they're always going to have a speaker that's going to give a gospel invitation, and then that kid comes forward to accept Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And so if you're ever in youth ministry as a leader, and you, know, you have a kid coming forward that wants to accept Christ, the easy thing to ask is, hey, what was said by the speaker that caused you to come forward? Because then you can gauge their heart. Like what was said, so you can connect with them, you know where to go with that. So what was said by the speaker that made you wanna come forward to accept Christ? He's like, oh, nothing. He said, it was watching you lose your mind on the church bus. Because I thought if God can save him, <laughs> he can save me too. And I'm not saying just go on and live like a hellion and do whatever you want and have no self-control. There's still the fruit of the Spirit. But we've all fall short of the glory of God. We are all smacked dab in the middle of our sanctification. We are all called to carry each other's burdens. There is a certain authenticity that should be seen in the body of Christ. That's even what it means to give a testimony, is to share how God is moving and working in your life. And in doing that, we'll have to share where we have fallen short. We'll have to share the really dark, deep things that maybe we don't want to talk about. But that'll be the very thing that God wants to use because a lot of times the things that he has redeemed us from, he sends us right back to, to save others because you can identify with them. We had a good friend Uh, At our old church, he was a deacon and he was just one of our best friends. He was always over at our house. He was a part of our life group. Our life group was the young professional, right? So they weren't college, but they weren't married with young families, young professional. And his girlfriend was also in our life group as well. And she was one of the reasons my daughter wants to be a missionary and just poured into her and and so many great ways. They'd come over for dinner all the time and it was kind of fun to sit and think about what their future would be like because both of them individually, it 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 was a story, it was a work of God bringing them together and it was just a beautiful thing. Until we got a phone call from her family that she was in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I had to call my friend Taylor Said, hey, I'm picking you up. We're going to the hospital. And she died that night. And a couple cool things. Talking about fellowship and and community. You know, how do you you walk in the next few days after that? We told our life group, and this is in the midst of COVID. And we just said, sorry, I'm seeing my daughter cry because she knows her. We said, hey, if you want, just grab your lawn chair. We're just gonna hang out in our garage and, and Taylor's gonna be there. And if you just wanna love on him and just be there, our whole life group shows up and we, they stayed for hours that first night. God doesn't give you like really good things to say. It's just the ministry of presence. In our church, in the next couple of weeks, we were doing one of those testimony nights, you know, where you're gonna find somebody with a really cool story and give this full testimony. And, and about 99.9% of the time, when somebody gives a testimony, you always have the ending part of the story, you know, like, oh, I was a horrible person, just running with the devil, and then he grabbed a hold of my heart, and now look at me, I'm married with kids, and, and my life is beautiful, and, da, 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 and we have this full part of the story. And I asked Taylor, I said, hey, would you wanna give your testimony? He goes, I'm still right in the middle of it. I said, exactly. Because I think it'll speak more to the rest of us who are still in the middle of our testimonies as well. That we're still waiting on that Disney fairy tale ending. We're still in the midst of waiting of why. Did God allow this? Why am I walking through this? What is, what is going on? And so we sat up there and I, we did an interview style and he gives his testimony and we, get, and we get to the present day and I said, and that's it. But God is still good, just like what we sang, even in the waiting to see what that completed work is gonna be. So back to the top, this is his story of redemption and all of us are in that waiting for it. But what do we do when we're in the waiting? Share the goodness of God in that testimony. Even if you don't have that completed, beautiful Disney fairy tale ending to it, is God still not good enough? Even in the midst, while we're waiting, saying, Hey, he's the author of life, and he's still writing, and the book's not completed, but I know him. He is good. He loves me, and he wants to be with me. So whatever that story of redemption, however that's gonna be completed, I know it's gonna be good. And so even in that, we allow the light and the love of Christ to shine through us. That people see the real, in the midst of it, kind of moments instead of always pointing to the fairy tale ending. That life is difficult, And we don't know how this is all going to be shored up, but we go back to the promises of God and understand his work of redemption will be completed. How we get there? Well, we're given a few little details, but we hold fast to the promise and to the character of God. And in the meantime, in the meanwhile, in the waiting, think of 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so what do we do in the waiting? What do we do while we're waiting for that completed story, work of redemption in our life? We allow the light of Christ to shine through us. We walk in that light. We fellowship in that light. We understand what the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished for us. And it's crazy to think, because like in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then you go to Matthew 5, and he says, you are the light of the world, Matthew five fourteen. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And so we understand that Jesus is that light. All we have to do is remove the basket. What are the things in our lives that are keeping us from being transparent and allowing the light of Christ to shine to this world around. Because how is a dark, broken world ever going to find a light that we want to keep hiding? So in the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when I think of God's work of redemption in my life, when I think about all that I have gained and and being in Christ, am I letting the light and the love of Jesus shine through me, even in the waiting, even in the incomplete story of redemption? But I know one day my hope is right there, Revelation 21, that the dwelling place of God is to be with me and with you. And however, he wants to use my life and my story to bring about that completed story of redemption. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And I hand my life over to the author of life, knowing that whatever he brings about, I can sing, you are good. Father, we love you and we trust you, Lord. And we thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word. We thank you for an opportunity to focus on you. And we thank you for the faith and the hope that we have, not just in what you are doing, but in your very presence in our life today. So continue to pour out your spirit on us. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Give us a courage and a boldness of our faith and our hope that is just so focused on you. And I pray that you would give us that courage for transparency and authenticity and that you would use us, you would use our incompleted works of redemption to bring about others to begin their journey. That they would look at us and they would see you that we would decrease, that you would increase, that those that are lost, broken, separated from you would find a hope in you, Jesus, as you are working and moving in our lives. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. amen.